Hello, I'm Mark White, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we are joined by guitar professor Mark White. Mark White is an internationally recognized jazz guitarist who's played all over the world, from the Umbria Jazz Festival, the Heineken Jazz Festival in Puerto Rico, Tokyo Music Joy here in the United States at Lincoln Center, the Library of Congress, and the Smithsonian. He's played with George Russell, Gil Evans, the Boston Pops, and many others. He studied with Joe Negri and Joe Pass, and has taught many students who've gone on to do great things, like his former students in the band Imagine Dragons. Mark talks about how to connect what's familiar to new pathways of advanced harmony and facility around the fretboard. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Mark White. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department. And welcome to another Coffee Talk. We're here, as usual, with our assistant chair, Cheryl Bailey. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, how are you doing there? <laughs> I'm doing all right. <laughs> and we've got Ian Steed, our senior coordinator, with us as usual. Ian. Hey, Ian. And today, you've already heard his voice in the background there. We've got, as our guest, Professor Mark White on the guitar faculty. Hey, Mark. Hey, guys. Great, Great to be with you today. Great to see you. So, Mark, yeah. I know um, from knowing you that you are a food and coffee connoisseur. It's the so truth. It's really true. I mean, we could do a whole show. Someday we may do a culinary show, but could you share with everybody um, how you take your coffee? I uh, prefer Italian coffees, and I get my beans directly from Florence, Italy. Uh, they're they're a, a roaster called Manarese, and they're in Florence, a.k.a. Uh, you know, there's, there's other names. Most Americans know uh, Firenze as uh, being Florence. But um, I I love their coffee. Uh, I'll also uh, drink another one called Danese that's from Rome. But I like Arabica type of coffee. And uh, the Manarese that I uh, prefer is a 92 to 8% blend of all Arabica. And some people say Arabica, so Arabica, tomato, tomato, potato, potato, Arabica, Arabiata, whatever, man. Um, it's from Florence. It's a great coffee. I grind it super fine, almost like a Turkish uh, kind of grind, like getting really close to the double zero, man. And then I pack it up and I espress it through Lavoni, uh, La Pavoni lever piston coffee machines which is my preferred weapon of choice when it comes to coffee making i love this yeah. so the first thing i'm, I'm going to remind you is you have to talk about this with uh, our dean ron savage who was on coffee talk and mentioned that he never drinks coffee in the united states because he got so um, enamored with Italian coffee. And now yeah. you could share with him that there is a way. Oh, there is a way to bring it home. I'll definitely have to bring that out because uh, I need to talk to, to him anyway. So I think <laughs> I'm going to bring up the coffee thing. I think but that's perfect. Yeah. I love, I love these old, you know, like I love mechanical things. I mean, you'll notice in my studio, Cheryl and I were just talking that I really like hardware. I mean, I, I use a lot of plugins in the mastering that I do and various different recording aspects, but I love classic hardware that is restored and, you know, brought back to life and to spec. And as opposed to, you know, recording with software plugins that emulate a quality, I love the hardware of like these, these silver Ampexes that are behind me. They're, those are old tape recorder pre's that have been converted to preamps 
Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, I just, I love the tactile sense of putting a great ribbon microphone through that RCA op six that's next to that. And just, you know, you get 90 DB of gain out of those old machines. I mean, those guys were building this incredible stuff. So, I mean, you know, it's a little bit difficult to find and you have to have it rebuilt or know how to rebuild it, but that's what I do. And that's what I do with my coffee. The La Pavoni lever machine is just, you know, it's a superior thing where you control the flow and the darkness of the coffee that you make via the grind and how you operate the lever. So, I mean, you're pulling it down and controlling like the, the thickness and how long the hot water is in contact with the coffee. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's a really, you know, kind of individual thing. It can be a little bit different, uh, but once you get it together, I mean, it's very uniform. And it's just my favorite stuff. And the Manorese coffee from Florence, that's one of my favorite cities. Every time I'm in Italy, I always go to Florence, and that's pretty frequently, So uh, or used to be anyway. But maybe again soon. Yeah. Because there's good things happening, folks. That's right. That's you know? right. You know, I love this because – we started by asking everyone about their coffee really because the whole premise of the podcast was that when we get to be together, we hang out around the coffee machine as much as we can, or we go get coffee together and hang out. And that's just kind of been guitars and coffee. That's how we hang. And what we've seen over and over again, what we've heard from y'all is how much the way you approach your coffee has to do with the way you approach your guitar playing and music. Holy and cats. That's absolutely spot on. <laughs> it's a direct analogy, you know, because making good coffee is like preparing for a proficiency exam. <laughs> and very timely that you say that. Uh, come out in the it just, just happens to be this, but it happens to be that time, you know, but very true. You know, uh, the, the thing that I always like to be able to work out with students is that, you know, a lot of guys have a phobia about doing the proficiency or what's sometimes called the final guitar exam, whatever you want to call it. It's been called various times. You know, it's, it's the final that's half of your grade in the guitar department at Berkeley for your private lesson. And it's a really important thing to be able to make it organic. Like, you know, making good coffee, you got to start with good ingredients. And when you have a good machine to be able to play those ingredients, that's when things come together and they work. The thing about, you know, proficiencies is that, you know, it, it kind of gets a bad rap because it's something that a lot of people put off to the end of their studies. Uh, you know, they wait till the end of the semester. They got all these projects doing. They're doing this arranging project and writing out all these horn parts and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you, you're kind of cramming at the last minute to be able to uh, put things together, which is, is really a shame because when you learn the proficiency material so that you can make it organic to your playing, then that's where things really go in another direction. Mm -hmm. You know, so like making good coffee, you got to have, you know, proper equipment and you have to be able to start with a good coffee product to be able to make your coffee, you know, no matter how you like it. My wife likes cappuccino. So, you know, I foam, I foam out the milk for her. I just drink it black, no sugar. That's the way I like my coffee. But, you know, there's definitely a parallel to the proficiency thing. Could I show you an example? I would love that. All right, cool. Please do. This is fantastic. All right, I'm going to grab a little Git Piglet here. Yep, and for those of you who are listening, Mark's grabbing his beautiful instrument. This is a, uh, a hand-carved guitar by John Buscarino. Just recently got this instrument, still breaking it in. You know, uh, still trying to find the middle C, but every once in a while I get lucky. I love that, man. Yeah, it's in there. Well, you got to have a little humor in this stuff. <laughs> you know, that's that's also another thing that's really important because, you know, your coffee is not going to come out exactly right every single time. But, uh, you know, you have to be able to keep trying and you got to keep working at things. So, you know, what I'm thinking is, 
you know, say you're, you're a level two student and you're working on your triad arpeggios. Um, when I talk about organic, I'm talking about finding a way that feels natural to be able to play something. And, you know, I'll bet about 95% of this all started out by learning a pentatonic or a blues scale, right? And you do a blues scale. Now, you would use that kind of sound, you know, over an A7 chord, get a little funky. You got like that kind of vibe going on, and you're playing your blues scale, right? Those are the sounds that we associate, you know, with that, that kind of action, right? But, you know, you're, you're in your level two proficiency, and the guy says, okay, Billy Bob Thornton, play me an A diminished triad, two octaves, man. And, you know, first of all, I see, you know, some guys will be able to nail it down. Some guys are, are trying to think about dots. See, I try to sing it and also be able to organize it in terms of where it's coming from. Like, for instance, when you play a pentatonic, that's great for any kind of minor type of sound. If you play a two-octave minor arpeggio, it's right there. If you make it into a seventh, you can add the seventh to that. And when you make it into a diminished, it's kind of like playing a blues scale where you got that flat five. And then what I do with that is like, because you would use a blues, you know, uh, kind of sound over maybe a dominant. That kind of stuff is real natural. So the diminished shape can actually be kind of derived from a blues scale because it's got a flat three and a flat five, you know? Uh, so what you're doing, See, that's very close if you play the blue scale and then you play the diminished chord. And I like this skip. You know, I'm going one flat three, five, and then one flat three and the flat five, and then I skip up to the top string. You could play it, you know, so that you uh, finish it up on the second string, but I like it in a block because that's what a blue scale feels like. So now if you want to turn that like into a Michael Brecker or a kind of John Schofield lick, think about, you know, the way that diminished chords work. And if you were moving things in minor thirds, like if I take that diminished idea and I take the top part of it and move it like a diminished. So it's down a minor third. And if I want to flam that third in there, I mean, that's kind of like the way that a diminished chord is moving like this in minor thirds. So now I'll put that little third in there. And that's how stuff starts working. So you see, you're making an improvisational idea out of something organic that you're supposed to be able to know and do anyway. It becomes a lot more fun when you turn it into fun instead of it being something that's like, oh, I got to do this thing, man, you know, and I'm putting my fingers on these dots. Sing it. I got the A today. That's good. That's like my high note. Thank God I don't smoke cigars anymore, man, because, you know, like when I was doing that, I could only get up to like maybe a G. But, I love that. Yeah. So you see, now, if you start looking at that raw ingredient, I mean, you know, that that's just like an ingredient that you're going to turn into coffee. You got to grind those beans, right? Mm -hmm. So you got this little thing on top here, the second octave, you know, just you can work with that. And then start using it like the diminished. But now think about the melodic motion because the melodic motion from one structure to the next, you know, coming out of like kind of diminished ideas, moving up in minor thirds like we all do. 
Now you have the direction that goes from the bottom up of each structure. And then you could play it backwards, top down. You can go one up and one down. See, these are the, the basic four melodic motions. So, you know, one up and one down, then one down and one up. You know, so that's just the basic structure. If you put a little bit of accoutrement in there, like, you know, flame in that third. to see you know like thinking about that diminished scale you got a diminished scale that's running up on one line so now you got this that's like michael brecker and john schofield and you got the four different melodic motions so one can go up then down Mark, you know what? What's awesome about all that is you, you could consider the diminished as the gateway, right? It's yeah, the gateway. Okay. It's always that that gateway you get into to really sounding like jazz. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, you, yeah. when you, I love what you're talking about because you're taking something that's so. I mean, good we, coffee beans. Good coffee beans, but 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 tying that to the blues, which is really, I mean really so many of us that's why we play the guitar because we love the blues and i think sometimes our students come in and then they're like oh jazz that's scary or something but so i love what you're talking about in terms of relating this to oh blues i love the blues i know about the blues i know the blues scale and now what you just showed in about you know five minutes there is opening up that whole gateway to harmony, jazz harmony, and taking away the fear factor of it, right? It's right there, and you hear it around that flat five and stuff. That's that's awesome. That's you great. got it. I mean, you know, that opens the door to harmony, too, because, you know, you learn these chord grips, as we call them. You know, so, uh, you know, maybe you're doing a 13 flat nine in level two, too. That can move symmetrically, even though it won't be the four tones inverted. You know, as it goes through minor thirds, like the diminished chord does, every note belongs to that diminished scale. And there's different ways of being able to organize this. You know, like when I was a kid, I was lucky enough to be doing lessons with Joe Pass. And you know who uh, hooked me up with Joe Pass was Joe Negri. So, Cheryl, do you, do you know the story behind Joe Pass and Joe Negri? No, but I'd love to hear, and I'd love to hear about your experiences with Joe Pass. That's can, amazing. Can and I, I'll try to I'll see if I can tie them together. Go ahead, Kim. I want to say to the people listening who don't have a reference point for Joe Negri, he is an incredible jazz guitarist that Mark and Cheryl studied with in Pittsburgh. And if you were a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, he was the handyman on the Mr. Rogers show. But uh, he's an incredible jazz guitar player. And so I just wanted to throw that out there as a reference point for some of the people who might not get that name. Right away. Yeah. And also, any Pittsburgher, he was a local TV celebrity back when they had local TV. And so he was he hosted shows. And it was, you know, if, if there was someone hip in town, he'd have them on a show. And he also did the little kids show. Um uh, with the castle, what was that called? Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yeah, no, no, he, he did a Sunday show with little kids and he'd play a diminished chord like that and he'd do the name game and he'd say, I see Kim, I see Mark, I see... So Pittsburgh is has this richness of this guitar tradition. You could go in any guitar store in Pittsburgh, if you play diminished chords, someone will go, that's one of them Joe Negri chords. Oh, <laughs> Joe was the man, man, the most working jazz guitar player and everything else in Pittsburgh, man. And a super still gentleman. is, still is. Yeah, man, he's he's just unbelievable. So yeah, I want to know about this little story with uh Joe well, and Joe. <laughs> well, I'll give you a little background here. I mean, just cut me off if I start rambling, okay? I still have to tie this together to the, the Joe Pass West Coast, you know, uh, diminished type of thing, which you guys will like. But 
what happened was uh, Joe Pass grew up in Johnstown after his family moved from Brunswick, New Jersey. Like when he was nine years old, his dad took a job in a steel mill in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is about 40 miles outside of Pittsburgh, famous for the flood of 1936 or some year around there, the Johnstown flood. You know, the locals remember Well, I will reveal that I was born in Johnstown Hospital, General Hospital. Oh, yeah, (laughs) It's other claim to fame, maybe not. (laughs) Separation. If they knew what a star they were getting in that little hospital, holy cats, man. Go dig that. Isn't that something? Well, anyway, you know, Joe grew up in uh, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. So as he started getting to be, you know, a better player, uh, he started gravitating toward gigs in Pittsburgh. So that being the the neighboring, you know, large city that had some, you know, uh, music happening. So he hooked up with a piano player named Bobby Negri. And Bobby Negri was Joe Negri's brother. A uh, good piano player, and they were a little bit older than Joe Negri. Um, you know, just, you know, like those extra five years. I mean, you know, when you're a kid, that makes all the difference in the world, man. You know, like a senior versus a ninth grader, man. You know, that that's a gigantic, like, uh, difference in years, you know, to that age group. So anyway, you know, Joe Pass is playing and gigging with Bobby Negri, And he said that, uh, you know, them both being of Italian extraction, that they would always hang out at Joe Negri and uh, Bobby Negri's mom, Italian, you know, woman that made all kinds of great pastas and meatballs and the gravy and, you know, the whole nine yards of the Italian thing. So, you know, it's like before the gig, you'd get together over at Mama Negri's house and, you know, you do a feed and then you maybe play the gig. So these guys were friends, you know, and uh, young Joe Negri saw Joe Pass, uh, you know, many times hanging out and just, you know, being a part of the familia, uh, which was really cool. That's how they got to know each other. And then later on, you know, they stayed in touch. And uh, once upon a time, I guess like when I was around 18 or 19, uh, Joe Pass was doing a seminar that a lot of guys, you know, in the jazz guitar world were starting to do back then. Barney Kessel was doing them. Howard Roberts was doing them and Joe Pass. And uh, so Joe Negri arranged for me to go to this master class at the Silver Slipper in uh, it, it was Charlie Bird's club in uh, Silver something or other, Maryland, uh, not Silver Lake. I'm Silver Spring. Silver Spring. That's it. You got yeah. it. So, I mean, you know, he had a club there and, and Joe rented the, the space and, and they did a thing. So uh, anyway, you know, Joe was not really super strong on theory. I mean, you know, he had some ideas and he would, uh, you know, kind of spout off some stuff. But he was really just into playing. He had a fabulous ear. And he could hear anything, and it was just, you know, ridiculous, the kind of things that he could do. So uh, anyhow, we we got to the session, and there were about 30 guys at this little seminar master class thing. And, uh, you know, Joe fielded some questions. Like, you know, some guy said, hey, Joe, what do I do with the Dorian scale? And Joe would take a big tug on his cigar and go, Dorian Schmorian. Uh, who wants to come up and play a tune? So me being the precocious little punk that I was, uh, I raised my hand and I went up and I played. And, you know, it was probably God awful. I'm sure that he was like, you know, biting his tongue and, and you know, really suffering. But, you know, we got done. And then I, you know, I looked at the other guys and I said, man, you guys should come up and play. And they're going, no, you keep playing. And so Joe and I played like 10 tunes. It was like really weird. I mean, he's a real saint for putting up with that because it must have been freaking awful. But uh, anyway, he was he was totally cool. And then afterwards, you know, I hit him up for lessons and he actually never charged me for lessons ever. I always brought him a good box of cigars, you know, as a as a kind of exchange. And I ran into a guy in the past few years. He was a teacher in New York that was teaching one of my students that we had in common. 
And uh, so I, I gave this guy, Joe, a, a, a call because we both have some Diaquisto guitars, which, you know, are a really fine handmade instrument, um, you know, from Jimmy Diaquisto. And he turned out, you know, that he knew Joe, too. And he, he remembered hearing about some kid from Pittsburgh that used to pay for his lessons with a box of cigars. Really wild, man. Six degrees of separation. See what happens there, Johnstown? <laughs> I love that. Um, I want to take a second to tie all of this great story in with the really cool thing you did. Okay. Coffee to the proficiencies. Okay. I want well, everybody to like to hear this, though. I mean that that you are you are making connections between everything. And I think it's just important to put a little point on that point that that the materials that you use on the guitar are foundational. If you internalize what's in the proficiency, then your applications could be endless. Then you already have this foundation. You have this internalized foundation so you can go sit with someone who's a master and they could say, oh, that thing that you can do with no problem that you could do all day long, that arpeggio from level two, guess what? Check this out. It becomes this. It becomes this. It becomes this. And if you know it, then you have the key. And then you work on the, the application of it. Absolutely. And, and then you also take that foundational knowledge and that curiosity about what can all this stuff do into meetings you have either by chance or through your teachers or through. That's how you end up sitting with masters of the instrument just because you are curious and you're prepared and you know you're willing to learn i think all of everything you said is a great blueprint for people who are thinking about like how do i approach this and and what i love about it i'll say as a person who is a classical musician and had classical training and then comes to the proficiencies not having seen them it's like when i look at them i'm like oh wow this is like a blueprint of the fretboard and if I internalize this and in the way it's presented, then I don't feel like an outsider to style that isn't my home. And, you know, in, in a sense, there's styles, but, you know, there's just organic, you know, coffee beans to be able to start out with. Right. I mean, no matter, you know, what kind of thing that you're possibly into, like, materials that you work on to be able to get your language together are universal everywhere. I mean, you know, you can, you can have a, a really, you know, kind of strange guitaristic thing. Like, you know, if you're doing that uh, beginning of the Villalobos third prelude, right. And you got this drone. Playing that intro, I mean, it's a guitaristic thing. It's seconds with a drone underneath. But it ends up in a C major 7th chord and a C major arpeggio. And then it's taken what would be normally like a James Brown kind of ninth chord. You know, so you got like that kind of vibe, but he's taking the ninth chord, instead of doing it like that, he's playing it with four fingers. He takes one finger and puts it on the top and plays the B open. So you get this very strange, mysterious chord. And then he does a sequence and lands on a big F sharp bar chord, right? What that is is ninth chords moving in minor thirds like a diminished chord would move and then you got a few passing notes from the scale and it's all over a drone then a sequence before it goes on to and again there's a James Brown chord 
and like we might do in a proficiency, you know, like a G7 arpeggio. With a little Meet George Jetson. Meet George Jetson. And then, you know, the second part is a whole different animal. But, you know, it, it's all put together by the glue of these things that are universal between styles. Jazz, classical music, funk and hip hop things. It's all related. You know, the same way that you would take like those diminished chords I was playing and, you know, just moving the old silent uh, movie kind of, you know, tremolo uh, piano thing, man. So you could take any chord that has diminished qualities and you can move those and then they can be inverted. Drop twos, drop threes. And it can move by scale. I got that off a Johnny McLaughlin record called Johnny McLaughlin, Electric Guitarist. You know, I want to say something about the Villalobos. Because people might not realize this. so Which I probably butchered. Sorry. No, it was beautiful the way you played it. Villalobos wrote the five preludes for classical guitar in 1940. Okay? So 1940, before a lot of the music that you're referencing, that you're saying, oh, this is in this. This is in this James Brown thing. This was so far before. He wrote it for classical guitar, nylon string acoustic classical guitar. And that particular prelude, the subtitle of it is a tribute to Bach. Really? Right? And so, yeah, there's like different ones for the different players. There's like little subtitles. There's little dedications, right? So I, what that I, says to me, I mean, first of all, every time I play or listen to his music for guitar, it's hard to imagine that he was not in our more modern time. You know, like when you play the preludes or when you play the etudes, you're like, this man never heard rock guitar yeah. Right? And yet everything in there is the precursor to it. And why? Because all of those shapes, as you're saying, all of the voicings, they are consistent. They're consistent vocabulary. They're foundations for all of us. And and to me, it's great to hear you play that music because it that's a lot of the bridge for me, you, you know, yeah. with that music. Absolutely. But, you know, it gets back to that organic quality. I mean, I try not to lose the thread on the diminished business. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the next part of that tune, it's actually when you're figuring out how you would finger it, it's actually what we call a soprano pedal. And then it winds up with a little modest drop to D minor seven. And then... minor drop three G7 over A another A minor a diminished So you know how those are being organized, those soprano pedals, that's a harmonic minor scale. So when you put together, it keeps on going right down the scale. guitarists who are listening how much easier would it be to read and memorize a piece of music if you knew that oh absolutely if you knew your harmonic minor scales from the guitar proficiency and you picked up this prelude and you knew your chords from the proficiency you could read it in a second absolutely you know so when you play you know d minor a minor seven you know g7 over a and a minor seven chord these are these are all standard grips as the old guys used to call them you know you took a grip and you moved it around you know that's how people learned a diminished chord and then you found out later on that those were inversions of those same four notes 
But the way that the guys on the left coast used to play it, and Joe Pass was essentially a left coast player, uh, you know, because he resettled in Hollywood. Well, actually, Northridge is where, you know, he was living uh, when I met him. And, you know, when you take a diminished chord, any tone in the chord can be replaced by a step above. So that's where a lot of these kind of motions come from. So you're playing in the box. And the way that they did it is they took the top four strings. And then they moved it. So again, you're getting these symmetrical ideas that come from diminished. They're not the same four notes exactly like a diminished seventh chord, but they all belong to the same chord scale. And when you study the diminished, you're going to find that the octatonic or eight-tone scale is a combination of the initial diminished, like an A diminished seventh chord, and then another one built a second above it. And this was, you know, long time used in Hollywood for like murder mysteries and suspense type of sounds. But, you know, basically we used to call those high lows in arranging because any low degree of a diminished chord can be replaced with an upper neighbor a step above. So you got a chord like this, you put that on it, you know. And you just find applications for these things that fit into the music, which I think is another really important thing about Joe uh, and Wes and other guys. I mean, Joe told me that when he first moved to New York, that he had one gig a week on Saturday nights. It was a regular gig. And the rest of the time he spent in his little dumpy apartment, you know, like trying to transcribe bird records, you know, Charlie Parker and learning repertoire because what the older guys did is they practiced survival skills. They didn't do the hypothetical thing. Well, you know, you can take this Dorian scale and then you can break it into these triads that are parts. I mean, all that stuff is really cool. I love doing that shit too. Oh, sorry. Man. But uh, <laughs> you, have to edit that, you have to edit that out. Man. There's no beeps here. Keep going. Keep going. No, no beeps, man. You know, but uh, what happens in, in the end is that they were survival skills. So it's like, you know, um, if you didn't know any tunes, you couldn't work, man, because there weren't any real books. And you couldn't download a lead sheet for a tune like Stella by Starlight, you know, off the Internet because there wasn't any Internet. Right. You know, so it's like you had to learn the tunes and you had to learn how to be able to hear the tunes and, you know, figure a way of kind of grouping them and typing them together, which is another thing I love to do, too. Right. You know, being able to play bass lines and memorize root motion, because that's how I learned how to, you know, learn changes from a great bass player friend of mine named Ed Felsen. That, you know, when I was a young cat, uh, Eddie taught me how to hear, hear changes, you know, through root progression. So I still do that kind of thing with guys, you know, being able to play a good bass line, I think, is really essential. But you got to take a tune and you got to be able to sing the root motion and, you know, be able to organize how you think about the tunes. And then you can, you know, kind of group tunes that have particular qualities of, you know, building block, like a tune that goes between relative major and minor, uh, or, you know, a tune that starts on a 2-7 chord, or a tune that starts on a sharp 4 half diminished, like Stella. You know, you're in the key of B flat, but it starts out with an E chord. Stella was like, if, if we don't really have a sports team at Berkeley, you know, <laughs> like you have a sports team and they have a fight song, but I yeah. always thought Stella by Starlight would be that song. Yeah. That <laughs> that, that's not a bad, bad idea. Uh, so Mark, 
this is really great. I want to talk a little bit about your Berkeley experience because obviously you brought all of this training and all of this perspective about really practical things that become the basis for your artistic work yeah. in every way, in every way, like learning the instrument, having the foundation to do what you want to do artistically, writing a book for Berkeley press called the practical jazz guitarist. Yeah. Yeah. How you're going to Aimless work. Self, self promotion. Right. I love it. Um, and how you're going to eat and how you're going to pay your bills and how you're going to work as a musician. Um, but you're also bringing it, all of this depth of experience to your teaching, which now at Berkeley has, is exceeded decades. And, um, yeah, three of them now, three of them now. And, and you've taught jazz students, but you've also taught students that have gone on to careers in pop popular music. Like I'm thinking specifically the, the students who later became Imagine Dragons and, um, many other students. And I think, um, I just wanted to put a point on that idea that, this approach really works for everybody. Absolutely. And I think some people are surprised over the years. They'll say, oh, is Mark White a jazz player? And it's like, well, yeah, but the way he's going to show you the fingerboard and how to approach everything in the fretboard is going to help you be who you want to be. So can you talk about a little bit about your um, just sort of teaching experience and philosophy that you brought to Berkeley? Sure. Um, well, you know, it, it definitely is based on kind of practicality because, you know, these are things I've always been a player as far as, you know, my first focus. I mean, that's what I've always wanted to do. Uh, but, you know, I could read okay. So I've ended up doing a lot of theater work and, uh, you know, the, you need to be versatile when you're doing theater work. So I found out a really funny thing. Uh, you know, like when I was faced with a, a lot of new things after you got done with those traditional shows like the King and I and Chorus Line and, uh, you know, Fiddler on the Roof and all that kind of thing. All these, you know, newer musicals started, you know, coming up. So I had to, you know, learn how to be able to really be a good rock guitar player um, and be able to play Rent and Seussical and High School Musical and Footloose and all these, these, you know, pieces that you really need a pedal board and a combination of guitars. And then other contemporary things like I played the Adams Family past, you know, a couple of years. That, that takes five guitars, you know, you nylon string, electric guitar, uh, rhythm acoustic, a steel string guitar and banjo, I think maybe. Uh, so it's like you have to be able to kind of get those things together. And I found that if you learn how to get a tone uh, for a rock thing, then you can get the right inflection and feel. And that's what I've, I've always done. So I have to do that. And I just don't, you know, cast aspersions on anybody that wants to get certain aspects of guitar playing together. They don't have to be a jazz guy. Uh, you know, it's like for years and years, I did, you know, a lot of fusion stuff. I played a Telecaster for many years. I'm just kind of getting back to my old, you know, bebop roots as I'm getting into a crusty old guy that I am. Um, you know, so I kind I like the arch tops and, you know, it's fun. But I still got, you know, a half a dozen, like, uh, solid body guitars that, you know, I use. And and you have to be able to, to learn how to get the sound of a Les Paul or a Strat or a Tele. And uh, now I'm, I'm using all electric guitars that are made by John Buscarino. They're Strat copies. Uh, really, you know, very versatile instrument. And I need that uh, when I'm doing those kind of things because you got to be able to rock out. So first of all, I don't have any problems with any student that wants to learn anything. Uh, you know, there's always an aspect that we can get together with their playing, whether it's trying to read or if you're trying to get proficiency materials together, or if you want to get into contemporary improvisation or composition, it's all interrelated. Uh, so, you know, the, the first rule of thumb for me working with any student is always to be able to do the very best for the student. The student to me is somebody that needs to be nurtured and taken care of 
in a real particular way. But, you know, you have to be able to look at the situation and sometimes ascertain what a person needs, uh, you know, as, as well as, you know, kind of towing the line and getting certain things together, you know, just like Joe Pass playing the tunes. That's how he worked. And you need to get that craft work together to be able to organize the fingerboard. So no matter which way you look at it, there's always an element that you can relate to. It doesn't have to be style specific uh, because I like any great guitar player, you know, whether it's a guy like Danny Gatton playing his redneck jazz, as he called it, or a fusion guy like Mike Stern, or, you know, any a number of the amazing faculty that are on the guitar department at Berkeley. I mean, holy cats, these guys, man, my pal Joe Stump, my martini buddy, Steaks and Martinis, for years we've been hanging out and doing stuff. I was at Joe's wedding, you know, it's like there's nobody that's got better hands on the planet than that guy playing guitar, man. I mean, he's just phenomenal. So much to learn. And he gave me one of my favorite, uh, you know, little uh, kind of things about myself. Uh, he said that, Whitey, you sound like Pat Martino on crack when you play. And I, I like that, man. I, and I always yeah, remember that. <laughs> we <laughs> can that talk was... about later what that translates to, but I love that. Um, yeah, remember now, guys, that drugs is for dopes. Right. We're not doing any dope here, okay? And when we say cats and guys, we mean the girls and the women, too, and everybody. Everybody. It's all inclusive. Cats is non-denominational, <laughs> and it has no gender affiliation. I mean, if you probably you know, saw my thing, it, it should say, he, his, cats. That's, I love that. As far as the that. pronouns, because it's generico. Um, Ian, this completely feeds into a question that you usually ask. And so um, I'm going to hand that over to you. Yeah. So there's a question that we ask basically everybody on Coffee Talk. Uh, get a lot of interesting answers. Um, what's something that you uh, feel like students should be asking that might not be on their radar? Something they might not think to ask. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I would think that a good starting answer would be you need to think about where your career is going to take you. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of difference in, you know, the time now from, you know, when I was a guitar player, young, young guy trying to be able to get stuff together, still trying to play this freaking thing. But, you know, I get the four chord every once in a while. At least I got this, you know, you know, pretty much together. But seriously, though, I mean, you really you got to look about, you know, diversity, um, what you need to be able to, you know, work and interface with other musicians. I think that's really important. And I think that that's one of the most important aspects of Berkeley. You know, people form relationships here that last for years. I mean, like my old pal, Victor Mendoza, called me from Spain this morning. I mean, Victor and I have toured the world together. Uh, we played concerts in Portugal, on islands in Spain, and, you know, all kinds of gigs around Boston. And I mean, you name it. Plus, you know, Victor's dad was a great guitar player, too, Antonio Mendoza. Uh, he's no longer with us, but, you know, he's a great spiritual force. And, you know, that's an association of players that you meet at a school. And, you know, whether you're faculty or whether you're a student, you're going to build these lifelong, you know, friendships that are going to help you to be able to work. And I think that that's a really important thing that you have to ask yourself. What are you trying to accomplish with your playing? Some people just want to work on you know, being a badass guitar player and getting their skills together because they've set aside, you know, a particular time and place to be able to do that. Every great guitar player needs to be able to do that, you know, at some point in their career. You just got to sit down, and as Wes Montgomery said about Django Reinhardt, there's a guy that just sat down and played a whole lot of guitar. Now, when you translate, that means the guy was practicing like crazy. So, 
you know, whether you kind of look at it in that folkloric type of language or whatever, you got to figure, you know, are, are you trying to be able to work? Or are you trying to be able to be a gigging guitar player? Are you going to be versatile that you can do theater work and learn how to read music and be a very skilled musician, not just a guitar player, um, you know, which is a really important thing that I, I try to impart on on uh, my students. I mean, I think that, you know, grids and tablature and anything that you can learn from is all really good. But I'm a really big advocate of being able to link together your Berkeley studies. Like you take in harmony class, right? When I see a guy that comes in, he studied all these secondary dominants and all these chords that he can do and all this stuff. And he's still playing, you know, comping chords like bar chords. You know, and, and that's his chord language on guitar. Well, he says, well, the other stuff, you know, like I, that's what I do for class. It's like, no, man, you have to be able to make that organic. What you learn how to hear and play is the same thing. And it's like, you got to be able to, to put that together, you know, sing what you play, sing what you hear and be able to use harmonies and understand how things work. Um, you know, so that's one of the things that I, I think a student should really be thinking about, you know, with, with their Berkeley career is that, you know, what direction do you want to go and what are you doing at this particular time? So I don't know. Does that answer that question at all, Ian? Yeah. The deadly Ian Steed question. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I like what you said, actually connected to some things that some other folks said, where you were like, you know, this can't just be, you know, esoteric knowledge. Like what you play is what you hear and what you hear should be what you play. Absolutely. And that's so, that's so real. I mean, it seems almost too obvious when you, when you say it, but it's like, that's like some real skill that like takes developing and, you know, Absolutely. connecting a lot of this. Cause I mean, at Berkeley, you just get uh, like right now people are taking their finals. I, this is going to come out after finals, but still like people get overwhelmed, you know? I mean, you guys went to Berkeley. Like, it's like, you just get like all this information just dumps right in front of you. And like, you know, people talking to students right now was in the office and they're just like, you know, how are you? You know, they just be like, Oh man, got a lot of stuff, you know, and it's, that's actually good, you know, because then yeah. you can start to sort of explore how you work that into your guitar playing. Cause yeah. like nobody really does it quite the same, right. Of no. all the folks, all it's these guitar players, so many people are applying this in kind of their own way or finding their own way of like mining that information and getting something out of the guitar from it. That's exactly where it's at. And, you know, nothing breaks my heart worse than when I'm seeing a student doing a final exam and you say, hey, Billy Bob, you know, play me this chord. And, and you see the guy's hands are like twitching around, you know, trying to remember the shape of the dots. I mean, you know, those things are cool, but it's like I say, hey, Billy Bob, uh, you know, play me a G major seven. And I see like the twitching thing, you know, and it's like all of these getting real frantic and all that. And I say, hey, Billy Bob, do you know a G major seven? He goes, sure. And he goes, bing. I go, sing the fifth of that chord. And he goes, do, ba da da. Okay, make it sharp five. Do, da. There's your chord. You want to make it flat five? Bing. You know, use your theory skills and your ear training to be able to put your guitar playing together. Yeah. Then when I, you, you I, get I all that it. uniformity, that that's when things start coming together more, where you can really start hearing things. I think you're right, Mark, because some of what you're saying is you want to play what you hear, but then it's okay to play stuff you can't hear yet. Sure. And, and let your hands lead your ears. Like You have, you you have to learn. You, know, you have to get in there. You have to jump in there. And, um, I, I love what you're saying and the connection. Um, and you know, what I was thinking is, you know, we usually start with this question, but I think it's a good last question for you as we're coming to the end of this really cool hour. Fun um, flies when you play in time. It's true. Um, the question is, was about people's first days at Berkeley. And I'm wondering if instead of answering that question, if there's something that's stayed consistent for you, whether it's a feeling you have when you're at Berkeley or an experience you have at Berkeley, like 
Is there something that's the same for you? Like on your first day, you saw this and felt this, and, and on tomorrow when you go in, you'll it's feel all, the same way. It's all the great players. I mean, that's that to me is the most consistency thing. You know, people can come and go, administrators and everybody else, but the one thing that is always consistent is the level of musicianship of the guys that teach at this college and the students that attend this college. I mean, that has always just been, you know, an amazing pleasure and a joy to be able to tap into and to celebrate. And that for sure has never changed about this school. I mean, you know, there are people that can say whatever they want, but you know, if you're a really playing musician, that there are other people around here that will always fill that bill, you know, regardless of whatever they're into. And I think that that's really important for a young student too, is like, keep your mind open. Don't, you know, just get into like, well, I'm a rock guy or I'm a jazz guy or I'm a funk guy. You know, it's like taking the big picture. You want to be able to see everybody. And there are so many fabulous people here at the school, fingerstyle guitarists, rock guys, cats that play country stuff. I mean, it's like you pick a genre, it's represented at this school. And it was always like that. There have always been really terrific uh, students and faculty here. So I think that that would be maybe the most consistent factor for me. That's a great. Yeah, I, I think that's really, really cool to hear. Um, Cheryl Bailey, what's your uh, final thought as we're wrapping up this pod coffee? Well, Mark, thanks for coming on. And anyone who hung out with Joe Negri's right on in my book. <laughs> but, I got his guitar hanging up on the wall right I know, here. I know. We got to hang and, and, and play and <laughs> check that out. But I really love really what you're saying, everything that you shared with us about um, the universality of just musicianship and, and the guitar. Right. And that, and also what you just kind of said there was like having that openness and not saying, well, I'm a rocker. So I won't do, I'm a jazzer. I don't do that. But that, that you showed just in the first 15 minutes of when we were hanging out that, um, you know, all of these skills make a whole, make the whole picture. So thanks for sharing that. And, and also, you know, relating it to stuff that we know, like a blue scale, we know that we feel, we love that. And how do we expand on that, make that a foundation to just build on? So it was very- yeah, that, that cool. little old pentatonic scale, man. <laughs> you know, when you play that up a half a step, fired <laughs> no. <laughs> all right nobody's getting fired today and we're gonna stay and hang a little longer but before we do that ian what's your final thought yeah i mean you got you got like pretty general and universal but as you just did you also get really specific so i think students are going to be going back rewinding and getting more out of this it's almost like a lesson you know oh, some serious so. mark white lesson that we're all getting here yeah, um, yeah. True, true to my heart, Mark, you played Villalobos and you played it so beautifully. And uh, you, took you, time. you showed the deep respect um, that is so, I hope, hope uh, well known in our department for all styles and approaches and all of the musicians in our department, all the students and faculty and what, what everybody brings to this instrument in their unique way. I think you oh, encapsulated that in a short hour in a that's really beautiful, beautiful way. And I'm so grateful, too, over the years to have sent an army of young students out there that, you know, so many of them are involved in really high-end professional stuff. Uh, and I'm really, you know, proud of that. You know, like Daniel Sermon, you know, the, those guys met in my eclectic electric band. You know, I needed a drummer. I needed a bass player. I found Dan Platzman and I found Ben McKee. And those guys played for the first time in, in my band at school. So they kind of credit me as being the origins of the beginning of Imagine Dragons. But then they stayed for five semesters. 
You know, they were there for almost three years. They're such great students. And I used to take those guys out on, you know, we would do like benefits for the Boston Food Bank and, you know, different kind of things like that. Uh, they were such really great guys. And they were really great jazz and fusion players, too. You know, so if you really get your stuff together, you can, you know, do any direction that you want to try to accomplish. You know, don't box yourself in. Right. I mean, it's like there is so much talent here to be able to draw from. Every one of the people in the guitar department is just, you know, top notch. You, you couldn't find a better faculty or more diversified faculty, you know, on the planet. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, talking about the word diversity, too, in, in these times where, you know, there's so much unrest and weird political issues and all the rest of that, which I certainly won't go into. But, you know, you, you find a bunch of really caring people that transcend color and religion and styles and, you know, being typified. These are just good people, man. They're good people that know how to interact with other people. And that is always what a good musician does before anything else. You got to be a good human or you'll never actually play good music, I don't think. I mean, you know, I, I guess there's some exceptions to that rule. But, you know, I, I try to be open and human in the way that I approach music and the people I work with. And I celebrate that in others, too. So things can only get better, right? That's right. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for everything that you uh, do on the faculty, and thanks for hanging with us today. Oh, and, thank uh, you, Kim and Cheryl and Ian. I mean, you know, three people that I really love and cherish that, you know, really nurture the guitar department. And things have never run, you know, so smoothly. And, uh, you know, I got I got nothing but praise. So thanks for having me today. And it was really great to be able to spend a little time with all you guys that might tune in later. I hope you pick an idea or two out that might be useful. Well, thank you, Mark. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, thank you, Ian Steed. Thank you, Cheryl Bailey. Um, coffee cheers to the three of you here and coffee cheers to everyone watching and listening. And we'll be back again soon with you for another Coffee Talk. Salute. Thank you.